God loves the world, and he intends to save out of the world a people from every tongue, kindred, tribe, and nation who will never cease to praise him. That's always in our, in our mind. The masses of people in the world that God loves and for whom Jesus gave his life. But notice, he says, disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. You'll notice he doesn't ask us to make converts. Certainly one needs to be converted to enter the kingdom. That's what Jesus taught. And generally, our churches are pretty well filled with converts. That is, through repentance, you turn around, and by faith, you start walking in a new direction as you follow Christ. And that's the beginning of a journey. That's not the end. Unfortunately, our church is filled up with converts, but we haven't been filling them up with converts. That's what he told us to do. And he is the one that can do it. And he tells us simply to follow him. And so at the end of the journey with his disciples, he told them to go and replicate what he had been doing with them. They could understand it because they had been disciples. They had seen the Great Commission lived out before their eyes. And this focus on discipleship is the key then for his plan to reach the world. The word disciple simply means learner as in the sense of an apprentice. And so as you learn of Christ following him, you grow in his character and his likeness and you'll begin to learn what he's doing, how he invests his life in others and in turn sends them out to disciple others around them. And as this process multiplies, someday the ends of the earth will hear the gospel. It behooves us then to look closely at Jesus because he becomes the interpretation of the command. Now I will make mistakes in my understanding and some of you have the same problem but I think we can all agree Jesus never made a mistake. Isn't that wonderful? So we have one who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Now what makes it difficult is that we live in an age that's nearly or over 2,000 years from the time that Jesus lived on this earth. We live in a different culture. Uh, we have different ways of doing things. I came here uh, last night on an airplane. If Jesus had come here to this meeting, how do you suppose he would have arrived? I imagine he would have walked, ridden a donkey. Methods change, of course, as times change. And we need to be relevant to our culture. And we recognize that the way we do things will be largely dependent upon their relevance to the situation. But principles will never change. We took different methods getting here, but the fact is we arrived. That's the principle, to be where you're supposed to be. And I want us to look especially at principles, because wherever we are, at whatever culture we're in, 
the principles will apply. And we're going to begin where we first meet Jesus in the incarnation. When he clothes himself now with a garment of flesh, becomes one with us, bears our sorrows, uh, carries our griefs, and finally accepts in his very physical body the judgment of our sin. The incarnation then is the platform upon which we must begin to understand what he did. And we recognize immediately that he renounced his own rights. He humbled himself, as the Bible says, and took the form of a servant. Now here is where we start. Renouncing our own rights. At the cross we confess we lose our rights to do as we please because he now owns us. He has purchased us in his blood. And so we become his servant and we follow him knowing that he is Lord. That's the beginning. But just as our Lord himself, we take that role that he himself chose and we reach out to people that are hurting, that need direction, and we try to lead them. We become a servant. And Jesus could see the people were, were, were in desperate circumstances. He ministered to them where, where they had need. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He fed the hungry. He cast out demons with those who were possessed. He was continually teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we're told multitudes were attracted to him. He looked out upon them as you read over in the ninth chapter of Matthew and he saw that the, the masses of people were like sheep that had lost their way. They were harassed. They were aimless. And the, the problem was they didn't have someone like a shepherd who could lead them. And so he told the disciples, look out upon this great multitude that are, that are here wanting someone to direct them, to show them the way. But he had assumed a limitation when he became a servant. He couldn't be with everybody in the world. So he told them to recognize the great need of humanity. Recognize the problem that they were facing right then. And pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth workers into his harvest. The harvest belongs to God. But he tells us we should pray for the answer to the problem of the harvest. For workers. And the way those words come together indicates that workers have the characteristics of a shepherd. And if you will multiply those kind of people, you know what will happen? You'll win the world. Now, that is where we begin. By renouncing our own self-centered ways and accept the lifestyle that Jesus himself has set before us and become a servant. And when you are known as a servant, you will never lack opportunity to make disciples. Don't you respond to people that show they care about you? Who take enough time to find out where you're hurting? Who can minister at the point where you're really looking for someone to help you? Notice those people around you. There'll be some. And if you will respond to that 
place in their life where they're already looking for direction, looking for someone to help them, you will have their attention. And that presents the opportunity that we see in the way Jesus responded to the multitudes in the world. He showed them that he loved them. He cared for them. Here's where we must begin. And this is the foundation upon which I wrote that book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Unfortunately, I thought this particular principle was so obvious I wouldn't need uh, to, to stress it as I did the other eight principles. Because every page of that book is built on this principle. But I've learned from experience, don't assume that the obvious is always understood. So I'm beginning here. Because if we don't take this stance in the beginning, we're not going to be relevant to the world around us that's looking for someone who can show them the way. Someone who will respond to their need. Now, having that as a premise upon which to build, we can go to the next principle, which is selection. This one is not going to be easy to keep in focus. Because as Jesus looked at the crowds, he realized that they needed someone who could be there with them, to care for them. And he realized his limitations. And so he began to look for persons who wanted to learn from him, who already had some desire to find a, a shepherd. And this begins to emerge at the very beginning of his ministry. You read about it in the first chapter of John. Where was the first place he started out when he left home? You remember? He went to the other side of the Jordan and joined the revival that was then in progress under the leadership of John the Baptist. And we're told that people had gathered there from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Samaria, as far away as Samaria, even as far north as Tyre and Sidon. They were in the midst of the greatest religious awakening that Israel had known in over 400 years. Not a bad place to begin, where people are already seeking help. It was there that Jesus was baptized by the prophet putting his seal upon this great religious revival. But it was there, too, that he was now identified as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. I think this was the most significant statement yet made in the history of redemption because it was tantamount of saying that Jesus was the embodiment of everything that had been prophesied. He was the one that had been promised who would come and the government of the nations would be upon his shoulder. He was the Messiah, the Christ. He was the one who was represented in all of the offerings of Israel for thousands of years. He was the Lamb without spot and blemish. He was the Savior. Can you imagine the excitement this would have created in the minds of those who had heard this? Because they had been taught this for generations. 
That is, if they had been alert to what the Scripture said. And to be told that everything that they had staked their salvation upon, which was the blood on the altar, when they identified with it and made it their own offering to God, if they had understood truly what that blood on the altar represented, to be told that now everything signified in the blood is embodied in this person who stands in your midst. Behold, he's come. Don't you think you'd been excited? Well, that would be enough to make some old cold Methodist shout the praises of God. It's a wonder to me it didn't break up the meeting. For immediately, the stage is set for Jesus to gather around him a great number of of followers. Why, if he had wanted, he could have amassed an army. He could have raised the dead. That would have been nothing for Christ. Why doesn't he do it? Why didn't he gather a great host of of, of men and sweep down upon Jerusalem and on to Rome and take the world by storm. He has every right to do it. He is the legitimate King of kings. And He has all power in heaven and earth. Why doesn't He lead a world revolution? That's the kind of Messiah most people were looking for. Someone who would deliver them from any adversity, from any suffering from any hardship. Have you lived long enough to realize that's the kind of Messiah most people are still looking for? Someone who will deliver them from any trouble, from any heartache. But that's not the kind of direction that Jesus gives us. He leads us to a cross. He leads us through suffering, through hardship, through persecution. Yes, it's not the kind of Messiah the world wants, even though they may be looking for someone who will deliver them. But on his way toward that destiny, he leaves this great awakening and begins to follow a path that God had already ordained for his life. It's astounding when you stop to think that Jesus turned down this initial invitation to rule the world with his mighty power. Because that's not the way the kingdom will come. And he will not compromise his objective to satisfy the self-serving desires of a sinful world. He walks away from that awakening of the Baptist. And never again is he actively identified with that movement. In fact, it causes consternation in the mind of the prophet. And he later sends a delegation to inquire if Jesus actually can be the Christ. You remember? I can see why why the Baptist was confused. I would have been too. And so many people are still confused. But Jesus had determined he would not compromise his objective. And as he led that way, 
there were two followers of the Baptist that noticed him leave. One is Andrew and one is John, the beloved. They notice him go. Don't you suspect they're a little more sensitive to what they've already heard? They want to learn more. And he sees them out of his, the corner of his eyes. He walks away from this great movement. And he turns and asks, say, who are you seeking? And you can hear them almost stutter, well, a, a, a master, a, where do you live? That's a good question. In light of what you already learned, wouldn't you want more information? Wouldn't you like to talk more with Jesus? How does Jesus respond? You remember? Well, come on home with me. Come and see. That's the way he began his evangelism, so far as we know, before he ever preached a sermon or worked a miracle. You see? He's calling out some men who want to be disciples. One of them is so, so filled with joy and anticipation, he goes and tells his brother. And so Andrew brings Peter. The next day we read Jesus found Philip. Now, I guess the extrovert, the guy that's always busy doing something, he'll probably find you. But the shy person that's over in the corner you may have to look him up. Jesus had to find Philip. But Philip had already learned a great lesson. You don't have to bombard a person with all you know. You don't have to preach to them with great eloquence and power. You just have to get them to Jesus. And Philip went and told Nathaniel when Nathaniel wanted uh, to learn more. He didn't try to argue with him. He said, I'll take you to Jesus. That's going to be the clue to our strategy now in reaching the world. We don't have the call of all these first disciples. We have Matthew a little later, that tax collector who was sitting at the seat of custom. We have the disciples as they were fishing, and he told them, now, follow me, and you'll become fishers of men. He's enlarging a little more what it's going to mean to follow Christ. But you see that he's calling out those who have a desire to learn. It's not that he loves the others any less. He still loves the world. But for the sake of reaching the world, he concentrates upon a few. Don't miss it. He's showing us how each one of us, with a handful of people, can change the course of history. Association. And you'll begin, like, you, like Jesus, with those that are already closest to you. These that we know as disciples in the beginning came from Galilee where he was raised. Only one of them came from the big city of Jerusalem. That was Iscariot, the traitor. All of us have a few people close to us, too, by environment, by language, by common interests, by culture. They're already close to us. Where's the most obvious place, then, to begin? <laughs> Your family. 
God has made a situation so everybody coming into the world has an opportunity to begin to learn. And that's where we can all start, with those that are closest to us already. Look for them. Receptive people. And as you pray for God to raise up laborers for the harvest, don't you have enough faith to believe he'll answer that prayer? But how will you do it? How you will take these learning hearts and lead them in the way so they can be conformed to Christ? Here's the principle of association. You build a relationship. Again, there's nothing new in this. This is the way we all come into the world. Two people are working for us before we get here. And likely, you come into a family where you may have a brother or sister. And usually you come just one or two at a time. More than that gets to be big news. But you are part of a family. Have you noticed how often the Bible speaks of God's church as the family of God? How we're brothers and sisters in the kingdom? How we pray one for another? We're all learning what this means. How disciples are made in that we grow up in this context. Now, I've taught for many years in theological schools, and I've listened to these boys and girls tell their story. And so many of them have come from broken homes, from dysfunctional families. And so that's not any surprise at all. Most of them, in fact, are some way bruised or hurt growing up. But that's no excuse for not fulfilling the Great Commission. And so I say, well, can you identify what went wrong, what you missed? And then if you can identify it, you can correct it. And if you will learn from your failures, you can become one of the smartest people that ever lived on earth. God has given us all enough failures we can be smart just by looking honestly at what you need when you missed what you wanted. Association. This is what Christ is doing with these disciples as he brings them into the context of his daily life for the better part of three years. They walk those trails together. They go to the temple and the synagogue together. On one occasion they went up to to Tyre on sort of a retreat, the longest distance he ever went, so far as we know, on earth, about 120 miles. Have you ever lived more, uh, gone, uh, have you ever gone more than 125 miles from, from where you were raised? Probably not. Everybody here is a world traveler compared to Jesus. Going around the world is not fulfilling the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Make disciples of all nations. And you start where you are, making a disciple. Give them a vision. Some, some of them may someday cross a cultural boundary and become an overseas missionary, but you'll still be a missionary right here in Fairfield. Association is how we're going to do it, how we're going to get close enough to them so they can learn from us. And so you bring disciples into the routine 
of daily life just like Jesus. I think the more casual the fellowship, likely the more effective it will be, like going to the ball game together, going shopping together. Oh, that's my wife's favorite pastime. <laughs> or some of you having a round of golf. Who would ever play golf unless they were fulfilling the Great Commission? Now, some of you smile, but everything you do should have significance for eternity. And golf is a beautiful way to have some relaxed time with a disciple, isn't it? Isn't it fun? And be fulfilling the commandment of God at the same time. Those times also can bring you together for prayer and study of the Bible. You can have extended periods of fellowship where you go away for a weekend for a fishing trip or for a retreat. Or you could have a seminar like this. And of course we need the larger meetings of the congregation on Sunday as well. But discipling is not primarily done in great mass meetings. That can encourage, that can present the message to numbers of people, but to really get close to them individually, you're going to have to break it down to a few. And that's where all of us are going to have an equal opportunity to fulfill the commission. But what keeps us going is this principle of consecration. We learn obedience and we teach obedience. Jesus doesn't ask us to recite a creed, have you noticed that? We develop creeds in the church, and I suspect most of you have a creed that you can, you can recite. But he is more practical. He says, put your life on the line. Follow me. That is, if you believe Jesus, live like Jesus leads you. Because that's the way you'll continually learn, just by following Jesus. You don't ever have to go to bed at night without learning something new. Isn't that wonderful? And you wake up in the morning wondering, what new thing will I learn today from Jesus? Likely, you'll go through some frustration, some difficulty. Learn from it. And your sufferings especially can be great teachers just as they were for Jesus. The Bible tells us he learned obedience through suffering. Yes, teach them obedience. For if they don't obey what he teaches them, they'll stop learning. You stress the outworking of faith, the practical expression of it. And it may involve accepting a discipline of devotion every day. Like the boys that meet with me, we agree very quickly to have a time of alone with God every day. We usually just arbitrarily set it at 30 minutes. And to read a couple of chapters in the Bible each day. Sometimes we'll read a book. Sometimes they'll add on to it their own personal witnessing, sharing their testimony. And later as we move on down the trail, I want them to be involved with someone in a discipling relationship just like I am with them. But we have to learn obedience or we don't get anywhere along the way. Because all of us are trying to learn the way of the cross. And when we come to the cross, as Bonhoeffer says, we die. And we learn the dimensions of our own 
self-centeredness as we grow in grace and we'll see more how we are looking after our own interests and how we neglect the things that are preeminent in the character of God. But we're still learning. God is merciful. He, he hasn't given up on us yet. But what makes us want to learn, want to obey, is the love of Christ. It's love that motivates us. He that has my commandments and keeps them, Jesus said, is the one who loves me. It came out just before he gave the commission there. As you read in the last chapter of John, the disciples had been out fishing earlier in the day, hadn't caught anything. Jesus saw them in the morning after they'd been out, and they confessed their failure of fishing. But he asked them to bring in whatever they had, and he had a little fire uh, kindled, and they joined him for breakfast. And when they had eaten, we're told he turned to the big fisherman, Peter, and he said, Simon, son of John, will you love me? <laughs> it's interesting. Didn't ask him if he obeyed him. And Peter heard that question again. And then again, three times. And it grieved him that Jesus asked him three times the same question. And so he said, Father, or Jesus, you know everything. You know I love you. Well, poor old Peter couldn't appeal to his good record. But he could appeal to his Lord's understanding. Jesus knows. When we love him, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the very thought and intents of our heart. Yes, Jesus is appealing to our love because that is what makes us obey. I remember when my son Jimmy was just past his fifth year and I was out in the backyard cleaning up my garden, and it occurred to him, since it was a hot day, that I was thirsty. So he pushed up a chair to the kitchen sink, filled it full uh, of water after he'd gotten a dirty glass. The next thing I knew, I heard my name called, and I turned around, and here was Jimmy walking across the garden holding up that dirty glass of hot water right out of the <laughs> faucet. And he said, Daddy, I thought you was thirsty, so I brought you a drink. That was a great big smile stretched all the way across his face from one ear to the other. Now, you might say, couldn't he do better than that? Why, that's not cold water. That's not even pure water. <laughs> You'd be right. But when you looked at his face, you'd say that's pure love. You see, that's what makes all the difference. And when you love Jesus, you will want to obey him. That's a principle. Make love your aim. But as you continue on that way, ever learning, as you continue to grow in knowledge and grace, Jesus shows us that we learn by demonstration. We lead by example. He was a shepherd. And that's the way shepherds take care of their sheep. They lead them. They care for them. They protect them. 
we had on our little farm down in Texas uh, some sheep once, and they they were so affectionate. I never had to drive them. I'd just go out there and and call them. And they would see me. They just follow me wherever I want to lead them. They're different than goats. You can't. Uh, you really can't uh, drive goats, but uh, they are not made that way. You can drive cattle, but sheep are made to be led, and that's the way you are. You're like a sheep. Even though he says he sends sheep out into the world where we're going to be attacked by wolves. That's all the more reason we've got to stay close to him. But demonstration. When you were with Christ, you were learning. You were in the presence of the truth. And I don't think I have to labor this principle because it's so obvious. Don't you learn more by what you see than what you hear? And that's what Jesus is giving them all the time, an example of what he's trying to get across. Teaching them in turn to lead that same way. And so when we're together, you share the priorities of your life. The inner life of your soul especially. When you're in prayer, what God says to you. And you want to have times to pray with your disciples. Above all else, Jesus was continually letting his disciples see him pray. And they were learning. The first time he gave them a lesson was in response to their question, would you teach us to pray? They had been reading prayers in the synagogue all their life, but they knew that Jesus had a deeper lesson. Do you remember that first lesson? He said, well, after this manner, you can pray. He lifted his eyes to heaven and began to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you hear him pray? And those disciples standing around, notice, he doesn't give them a sermon on prayer or a book to read on prayer. What does he do? He gives an example. We call that the Lord's Prayer. That's the way all of us learn most naturally, by seeing it lived out. So take them with you as you are able when you're witnessing or when you're in ministry, when you go to the hospital. And of course, you need to create an atmosphere of transparency in your own life. Don't hide your own failures. Confess it. But they will respond to the authenticity that they see in you. But that brings me to one more question we're going to one more principle we're going to take before we have our break. I call it delegation. Involve them in ministry. At first they were just really following him, learning from him, but the time came when they needed to go out themselves and begin to practice what they were learning. They'd been with him probably a year and a half, maybe two years, when one day they stopped along the way. And he said, at the rate we're going, I can imagine him saying this, we're not going to reach everybody. So we're going to divide up now, and you can go out and you'll multiply this ministry. They were probably scared to death. But he said, don't worry, you don't have to go alone, we'll go in pairs. And all you have to do is what you've watched me do. 
just heal the sick, cast out the demons, preach the gospel of the kingdom. Remember? Now when you come into a new village, he said, the first thing to do is to look for the most worthy family. That is someone who has a desire to learn, who will open their home, who will provide hospitality. Now suppose, though, after you've canvassed the whole community, there's nobody that wants to invite you in, nobody who appears to have any desire to learn. What are you going to do then? You're going to grit your teeth and say, I'm going to make this program work if it kills me. Well, that's one option. What did Jesus say? Remember, we work under the mandate of our own limitations. We don't have endless time. He said, if no one wants to learn, no one will even give you a place to rest your head. Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next village where there are people who haven't yet had the first opportunity to hear the gospel. We don't have the luxury of just going through programs where no one is being discipled. He's speaking to us all. And finally, before he leaves, just before he ascended into heaven, he gives them his last command. You go now, and you do what you've been watching me do, and what you are already beginning to do. You replicate this same pattern in your lifestyle. The people that are close to you that are growing in this same discipline of life, give them reasonable assignments that are simple enough that they can handle. Gradually enlarge them as they prove their competence and as their skills develop. Utilize their gifts. Everybody can do something. Reminds me of a riding academy way out in West Texas near where my daughter and her, her husband were pastoring a little church in Monaghan. And they advertise they have a horse there at the riding stable that will suit everyone's taste. You ever heard of it? For fat people, they have fat horses. For skinny people, they have skinny horses. For fast people, they have fast horses. For slow people, they have slow horses. And if you don't know how to ride at all, they've got horses that have never been ridden before. Now, I don't know what your taste is, but there's a horse you can ride. And more to the point, there's a horse everybody in the church can ride. And if you are a leader, it's your business to help that follower find her or his horse. We're all delegated, you see. And when Jesus gives this last command to his church, we all respond in the same way that those disciples responded. We see it as a commission. God entrusting us with the ministry that he himself has demonstrated in his life. It's not some special calling. It's not some particular gift of the Spirit. It's a lifestyle. It's the way you can live every single day wherever God plants you. Aren't you glad he planted you where you are now? Oh, what an opportunity. He wouldn't have planted you here if he didn't want you to make disciples.
and teach them in turn to do the same. Someday by multiplication, the world will have opportunity to hear the gospel. I say amen. What a way to live. Every day in fulfillment of Christ's commission to the church. Lord, help us. We've started. There's a long way for us to go. Oh, we thank you that you're patient with us. We want to learn more. We're glad that you, you give us more grace. And we trust you to lead us on to that day when finally your commission will be accomplished for your glory and to the praise of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.